Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show where you will learn about the secrets of good enoughness and the good life. My first guest is Professor Andreas Elpidoru. He is a professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Louisville. Professor Elpidoro specializes in the philosophical study of the mind with an emphasis on emotions and consciousness. He is the author of Propelled, How Boredom, Frustration, and Anticipation Lead Us to the Good Life. His work on the nature and value of boredom has received worldwide media attention. And you are in the house, Professor. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. Well, I am always up for a good conversation about how happiness works, which I posit is in inversely. <laughs> it always <laughs> happens after something bad happens in some ways. Yeah, and that's part of how um, I conceive the project motivating the book. And a lot of my work is that we all seek happiness or we aim to achieve happiness, but there are a lot of obstacles that we encounter in our everyday lives. And so the question becomes how we best deal with those obstacles and how we make sure that we are able to reach a point that you know, we've secured enough happiness and we can still um, enjoy our lives and pursue the projects that we want to be pursuing. So when we talk about unhappiness versus happiness. Are you suggesting that unhappiness is ultimately the secret that leads to our contentment? In a sense, yes. I don't want to be too strong. So I don't wish that to be misinterpreted as one ought to be actively seeking unhappiness in order to become happy. Rather, the point is that happiness cannot be a stable condition for various reasons. Um, I think one main reason is that if we are constantly in a state, in a happy state, and that doesn't fluctuate, then I think we will become bored with our happiness. And also it might even seek to appear to us as being a happy state. We just get used to it. We adapt to the situation and then we don't want that anymore. The second point that is very much related, and I think it points to a need of temporary moments, of fleeting moments of unhappiness, is that there are different understandings of happiness and 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 I take happiness to not only be a feeling or a pleasant sensation, but also a, an approach and an understanding that we have about our our own lives. And to be happy means to be satisfied with my life and but also to feel that things are going well and there's a certain growth and progress. And so those moments of unhappiness allow us to, take a perspective on life, allow us to look at what we've done and what we've accomplished. And we can say, well, I've done well approaching my goal or I'm not approaching my goal. And I need to still seek out and try the, the best I can to accomplish the goals that I want to be accomplishing. You know, when I look at the happiness equation, I think about contrast heightening awareness. You know, so when we have mm. those particularly unhappy moments, or even those particularly happy or blissful moments that we can take a snapshot of and contrast and compare to those opposites, I think is helpful in terms of goal achievement and striving and recalling at least the positive memories when things aren't going well. Yeah, this ability to take a perspective and compare or remember, recall different moments in one's life is turns out to be very important for us. And as you said, you know, when we're down, 
it really helps to be able to remember a time when things went well or the reasons why things have gone well in the past. And also when we are when things go well, you know, we don't want to be complacent. Um, we don't want to just assume that things are going to work out now and we don't need to do anything. We need to be on autopilot, for example. So fighting that adaptation, fighting kind of, you know, an understandable urge to let go, having memories of when things go wrong or when things go right, it's going to be very helpful. And they're part of a, you know, a toolbox that we have, I think, when we're trying to deal and engineer our lives and try to construct the best life that we can. In your book, Propelled, How Boredom, Frustration and Anticipation Lead Us to the Good Life, you talk about these attributes of boredom, frustration and anticipation as actually helpers, that they can help us. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I think it might be easier just to begin a little bit with begin with boredom and describe a little bit why I I think that boredom plays a useful role in our lives and that might give a you know a sense of a sense of the general thinking and uh, the framework of the book it is often I think we a lot of us oftentimes we think of boredom as something that shouldn't arise. And so anytime the boredom arises, it is something that we need to, we're doing something wrong. It's, it's a state that we need to get rid of. But I think that's the wrong way of viewing boredom. And in fact, I also think it's the wrong way of viewing a lot of the negative experiences that we have and the negative emotions, things that don't feel good for us. In the case of boredom, it's worth taking the time to consider why we're bored and what boredom might be indicating or signaling to us. So I think one of the key messages that boredom, the experience of boredom carries, is the fact that what we're doing right now is not satisfactory. It just doesn't fulfill our aims and goals. And that is a very important information to have. Um, it's not always obvious that um, what we're doing is not important for us or not meaningful, but if we have a system or an experience that tells us or it feels as if or like we're not doing something meaningful. Um, it becomes an effective mechanism that allows us to navigate our lives. And, and I think that that's the first lesson when it comes to boredom. The other lesson is that boredom is a highly motivating state. Um, and what I mean by that is that it's really not pleasant to be bored. And when we are in a state of boredom, we want to be doing something else. We want to alleviate our boredom. And so combine those two elements of boredom um, the informational signal that it provides and the motivating force that it offers, it helps us to overcome certain obstacles. So without boredom, we might be repeating a task over and over again without realizing that's not meaningful or that is a, not a stimulating task or that it doesn't have something to offer to us. But with boredom, it's there. It signals this presence of meaninglessness, and it allows us to perhaps turn our attention somewhere else and do something else. So there are going to be this crisis, and I think boredom and frustration are two examples of crisis, but there are opportunities for us to do something else. Let me ask you something about boredom as it relates to, for example, kids. Like I have young adult children who will occasionally say to me, I'm just so bored. And I look at them, you know, quizzically, like, how can you be bored when you have a good mind? Mm -hmm. I think that's a I think that's an excellent observation. And ultimately, I think it points to something really profound about boredom. And I, I can also use my children as as an example. My children are younger, uh, but they will come to me saying, "I'm bored," and then I will start listing a number of activities that they are able to pursue. And, you know, under other circumstances, I think they would pursue them or they had found them interesting in the past. And yet nothing appeals to them. And this hints to kind of a profound idea about boredom that has to do with the fact that when we find ourselves in a, in a state of boredom, we are not sure how to act. There is mm. a, a form of crisis that arises. And it's really hard to deal with that crisis. We know on the one hand, that what I'm doing right now, we don't want to be doing that. But on the other hand, we're not quite sure what, what alternative is the one to pursue. And I think some of us um, 
are better equipped at that. We have found ways of overcoming boredom or solutions to when boredom arises. But I think children are still discovering that ability on their own to move from a state of boredom to some other state that it's more meaningful or interesting to them. And now if we pivot the conversation about boredom to adults, you know, the other end of the spectrum is perhaps an aging adult who finds themselves either bored or frustrated and what that sort of reflects about where they're at in consciousness, you know, because they've had so many Mm -hmm. lived experiences and yet they find themselves sort of with their head banging against the wall and and discontentment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is a, um, I think, you know, we learn a lot of things through the pandemic. Another lesson that we've learned, I think, is how much we depend upon a social context. Yeah. Um, for forms of entertainment, stimulation, and, and cognitive engagement. And, you know, I think it hit people who had the hardest, the people who had to stay home for the longest period of time and perhaps without any social activity. And then, as you say, so there are a lot of things going on. You don't have the opportunities that you want to have. But at the same time, if you are, if you carry a lot of memories of past activities, of meaningful activities, then the need of, um, cognitive engagement becomes even more pressing. And, and so I think you know, young children, older adults, for both of them, boredom is a very serious problem. And you know, my view is that, um, as I describe in the book, and I've, I've written about this a lot, I do think that there's a positive side to boredom. But at the same time, we, we have to navigate that carefully. Um, We can use boredom in certain ways. It can be beneficial to us. But at the same time, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that for certain individuals, depending on their condition, it can be a a real, um, it can cause real harm. Yeah. Depression. Yeah. And um, now that it, Since you mentioned it, one of the strongest correlations between individuals' propensity to experience boredom often, that is, if you find yourself bored all the time or often in various situations, the strongest correlation between that condition is depression. And the studies over and over again uh, vindicate that finding that people who are constantly bored are very likely to be also depressed. We are going to take a little break, and when we return, we will continue the conversation with my guest today, Professor Andreas Elpidoru. We're talking about his book, Propelled, How Boredom, Frustration, and Anticipation Lead Us to the Good Life. To learn more, please visit elpidoru.net, and that's E-L-P-I-D-O-R-O-U.net, and you can find him on Twitter at A. Elpidoru. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Before we take that pause, let's talk about cooling temperatures, leaf peeping, and hunkering down to business for a strong year-end finish. How are you planning to gear up for fall and attract the right people to your team to help your business fire on all cylinders? Right now, our team is actively seeking advisory board members for a startup venture, and LinkedIn Jobs is my go-to network to find the right talent to help us soar. Create a job posting in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs that will reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 810 million people. Then add your job and the purple-colored hashtag hiring to your own LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring so your own network can help you target the right people to hire. Simple tools make it easy to focus on attracting the right skills and experience so you can quickly evaluate and prioritize your best candidates. LinkedIn is the go-to resource for team talent, and that's why small businesses everywhere rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering high-quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash HH. That's linkedin.com slash HH to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And 
And we're back continuing the conversation about the secrets of good enoughness and the good life. Let's get back to the conversation with Professor Andreas Elpidoru. So Andreas, we've talked about boredom. I'd love to now discuss frustration because this is something that I feel from time to time. And I would love to hear your take and perception on its place in our human experience. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation to talk about frustration. I think frustration is one of, is a greatly misunderstood emotion. I think as you hinted, it's something that we all experience all the time. It's part of the fabric of human existence. So it is important for us to really come to terms with its nature. Um, in my view, frustration does two things for us. Um, the first one is that it signifies that something isn't going the way that we want it to go. And I think frustration typically arises in context in which we want to accomplish an aim, but there's an obstacle that doesn't allow us to accomplish the aim. And the obstacle can be minor, it can be a more major obstacle, but there's something in our way. And this frustrates us because we do want to achieve the goal, but we just can't. Second, mm. related to this idea of an obstacle is a realization that the reason we get frustrated with the obstacle in the first place is that the goal matters to us. It is important to us. So if you think about the things that frustrate you, I bet that most experiences of frustrations are somehow related to things that you also value. So if I'm frustrated that my computer is not working properly, it's because I want to get something done. If I'm frustrated that my children are listening to me, it's because I think there's value in having that conversation or giving them my advice. The, all those frustrations are indications that something that we really value in life is not quite there yet. We just cannot achieve it. So I think that's a very important realization because it allows us to think of frustration not necessarily as a breakdown in human existence or in our everyday existence, but rather as a realization and as a realization for value and a call for action. Yes, yes. And the things that we become frustrated about truly matter, right? So there's a higher yes. investment level than in just what our choice for dinner might be. Exactly, exactly. And I think we can, from our own experiences, when we start recalling, you know, situations during which or in which we became really frustrated, I think we will discover that the reason why we became frustrated is because there was something there of value to us, of personal value. So obviously the things that frustrate me aren't, aren't going to be the things that frustrate you or somebody else. But that's because we all have, different values. We've shaped our lives in different ways. Um, and so we have our own frustrations. And, and knowing that, um, I think it allows us to see frustration in a different way. But at the same time, and also importantly, frustration is a source of energy. I mean, if you're trying to recall what it feels like to be frustrated, it pushes you to try to accomplish <laughs> what you want to be accomplishing. Yes. Yeah. And I think about frustration, it can be a catalyst. I also think about frustration as an opportunity for learning how to manage expectations, mm -hmm. you know, not being wedded to outcomes. So the frustration, while I'm feeling it, and I'm sure listeners can relate to this, you have the sensation of feeling frustrated. It's not pleasant. And then sort of the reframe or the adaptation of the frustration to, well, I'm going to make this as a lesson in, in acceptance or a lesson in not imposing my will on the situation. So then the frustration becomes the teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is a natural occurrence, so we, a common one. So I think the suggestion just raised, it's really important. It, we have to understand that frustrations are going to arise and we need to figure out how to deal with them. And I think at some certain times we might want to invest further effort in trying to overcome the obstacle that gave rise to frustration. But other times we might just say, well, it's just going to be frustrating. That's how things are. Or even we might make our mind, make up our mind and say, well, this is too frustrating for me. And perhaps the goal isn't worth all this effort. So it allows me oh, to reorient it. That's a good one. Reorient myself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? <laughs> <laughs> Most people will say, I want to be both. 
(laughs) But listeners of this show (laughs) may answer differently. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about anticipation, because I think anticipation is quite delicious. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I agree. Let me say a little bit more about it and, and, and kind of the background, why anticipation. There is a theme that binds together um, the three states, um, boredom, frustration, anticipation. And it has to do with our orientation and relationship to the present. And I think when we're bored, when we're frustrated and when we're anticipating, we are not engaged um, with the present or a better way, we're just not satisfied with the present. We want something else. And so anticipation is a state that puts us in touch with what is to come. And I, the more I read about anticipation, the more I study that state, um, I find more and more value in it. And um, you know, there are, there's a lot of um, evidence that suggests that um, being able to anticipate can be a great source of pleasure. I mean, think about yeah. you know, waiting for your morning coffee or you're planning to take a vacation and you're mentally anticipating for that. Um, that's a great source of pleasure. Uh, but it also it has been related to a lot of health benefits. Being able to posit yourself, you know, picture yourself in the future as doing certain activities, being optimistic about the present. And it also gives you a sense of meaning and a sense of direction. Um, so there are just so many benefits to anticipation. So you know, there's a lot of a discussion about always being present in the moment. And I think there's value to that too. But I think that attitude shouldn't take away from the fact that we have a lot to learn and we can benefit greatly from anticipating our future states. And with that anticipation also comes the the ability to delay one's gratification. And those of us who are able to do that more comfortably, I believe the research, you know, shows that we end up having more successful experiences as adults. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and it also allows us, I mean, related to success, you know, often success requires planning, detailed planning, and it also requires waiting for the right moment. So being able to anticipate puts you in, in a position to put you in a better position to deal with both the present, but also with the future. Um, so if you're expecting something or if you want something really badly to happen, then you're going to make certain choices in the present moment. And you're going to make sure that the choices that you're, you're uh, making right now are consistent with your anticipatory goal. And so having that, we can use different metaphors or different ways of describing what anticipation can do. But in some sense, it paves a way for us forward and we're able to better walk that way and navigate it. And that can lead us to success often. And also what I hear you say is that by embracing emotions or sensations that we don't believe make us happy by our ability to embrace them, it helps us put everything else into perspective. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think it's out of necessity. In some sense, it might be out of necessity that we have to embrace those emotions because I think a life um, during which one doesn't experience any negative emotions is unimaginable. And boring. Same, and boring <laughs> Talk as about well, boredom. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> But at the same time, there's a lot of value in those emotions and and not acknowledging them as emotions or as valuable experiences, as didactic moments or as motivating forces. I think it robs us of the opportunity for further growth, success and ultimately contentment and happiness. Dr. Andreas Elpidoro, thank you for joining me today. That was a joy making conversation for me because it really speaks to the concept of where happiness really lives, right? It doesn't always live in those positive moments. Sometimes it's sneaky. It lives in the nooks and crannies of our lives that don't feel so happy. Absolutely. Um, And thank you very much for um, having me on your show. Oh, it's a pleasure. We're talking about Propelled, how boredom, frustration, and anticipation lead us to the good life. Once again, my guest today has been Professor Andreas Elpidoro. To learn more, please visit elpidoru.net on Twitter at 
A. Elpidoru. Thanks again, Andreas. Thank you. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We're back talking about the secrets of good enoughness and the good life. My next guest is Professor Avram Alpert. He is presently a fellow at the New Institute in Hamburg, Germany. He received his PhD in comparative literature from the University of Pennsylvania. Avi has taught at Princeton and Rutgers and is the author of three books. In 2018, he co-founded the Interdisciplinary Art and Theory Program at Jack Shaneman Gallery, where he now serves as an advisor. And he is the author of The Good Enough Life. And I welcome you, Avi. Thanks for joining me today from a very luscious, beautiful location. It is my pleasure to be here. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Can we tell everybody where you are? Sure. Uh, Yeah, I'm staying with some family, some of my wife's family here in Kithara, Greece. So Avi's coming to us from the Greek islands, and I am not particularly green with envy because I'm headed there myself in a few days. So we got to have a a quick chit chat about beautiful spots on the Greek islands. But let's just jump into what it means to be good enough and the origins of the book, The Good Enough Life. Sure. So I love this phrase, The Good Enough Life. It means a few different things for me. And maybe it's easiest to start with the origin. So so the idea comes from the, the psychoanalyst uh, Donald Winnicott, who talked about the good enough mother originally. I think today we tend to say the good enough parent. And Winnicott's idea was that, you know, parents sometimes try to give their child very reasonably, right? You try to give your child everything. You don't want them to suffer. You want them to feel secure. And, and some baseline of that, of course, is very important. But when we try to do too much, when we try to be that perfect parent, we in fact are taking away from our children their ability to understand the fact that life is difficult, the fact that life is only ever good enough, but that it still has to be good enough, right? You don't go from being a great parent to a terrible parent, and life doesn't go from being perfect to being awful all the time. You try to actually aspire to this range of good enoughness, which is this understanding that even though right, life is imperfect, friends sometimes betray you, accidents happen, people have competing desires, we can't kind of get out of of all these these facets of existence. But we can still try to ensure, right, that we have enough, that we our material needs are met. We have housing and and shelter and sorry, housing and food and clothing and care. Uh, and that our lives have some meaning, right? They they have some happiness, they have some goodness, they have some purpose and and direction. And that because, right, we are these kind of, let's say, shards, these kind of fragments, these kind of imperfect things, we find our meaning when we're able to do this all together, when we're able to sort of say, this isn't about my pursuit of greatness, but this is about our pursuit of good enoughness. And I'm going to use my individuality, my creativity, my adaptability to help others on their path and on their way. And they're going to do the same for me. And so I think from this very simple idea of Winnicott's, there's a very evocative world about what it means to really live a good life uh, and care for each other and, and find purpose and meaning. Uh, so that's that's what I try to develop in the book. Well, I I love what you say about the good enough parent. You and I were talking about this before we started the recording that um, I was influenced when I was parenting my kids by the work of Dr. Wendy Mogul, who wrote a book called The Blessings of a Skin Knee. And she wrote in depth about this good enoughness, you know, that um, good enough is good enough and it's actually can be great. Mm-hmm, for sure. You know, it's funny. I was thinking, I, I can't exactly remember a particular skinned knee as a child, but I did, as an adult, I twisted my knee running for a subway once and I tore some cartilage. Ooh. And, you know, it never quite healed. It's, it's certainly better now. Uh, and for a long time, you know, I was, I was 25 when this happened and I had this real sense of kind of aggravation. I didn't need to catch the subway. You know, what, what an idiot I was thinking. But, you know, it did also open up, you know, in a very limited sense, obviously, um, I can't fully appreciate what people go through who who have uh, severely uh, restricted mobility. But I began to understand much more, you know, like I would be discomforted in this very minor way by sitting, uh, by standing in particular positions. 
and when you know when our lives kind of function smoothly, when there aren't any problems, we don't understand each other. It's it's harder to generate empathy for people who are going through problems or difficulties. Um, and as we come to, I think, to appreciate our own, when we kind of realize, you know, when we skin our knees, when we overcome that difficulty ourselves, but also when we come to appreciate how hard that can be. Um, and how some things are much deeper than a skinned knee, uh, and how, you know, again, we need to appreciate the difficulty means we need to work together, appreciate each other, feel empathic for each other. You know, when I think of um, going to the skin knee metaphor, that it appears to me from my own experience, and I'll just speak from a lived one, mm. that the the most growth, the most transformation, the most sort of coming to know myself always is the result of a skin knee. It's never when it's easy. Yeah. No, and I mean, right, because if it's easy, then it's the thing we've kind of already been propelled into, right? The, to, to echo, I think, one of your other guests, right? Like, we've already been um, guided by the world in a particular way, and we're sort of following that along. And then what happens when we skin our knees or we don't get a job or someone rejects us is we're kind of forced to take a pause, and reflect on our condition, reflect on our situation. And so sometimes it's it's through that kind of breaking with the rhythm um, that we're able to see things a bit differently, a bit more interestingly. And, you know, from my experience, that isn't always for the best. I don't want to sugar, I don't want to say, you know, every time something goes wrong, it's really just going to be better the next time. I think really kind of what it means to cultivate a, a good enough disposition or, or a, you know, a kind of rich and full set of the sense of the complexity of life it means that sometimes bad things are going to happen and it's really just going to be bad. And that's part of like understanding what it means to, to be yeah. human. Except, and that's where acceptance comes in, which I think we as humans have a hard time with that because we're so driven by wanting to control our environment to allegedly stay safe physically and emotionally. Mm -hmm. I think it's a certain paradox of, of human happiness is that, you know, part of where our happiness comes from is through our drive to improve things, right? It's because we think, okay, there's this this part of the world that's really difficult or, you know, we can't get the goods that people need from one place to another. And so we can develop logistically, we can develop infrastructure, we can build, we can expand. Um, and that creates a lot of the amazing things we have. But as we, you know, do all of those things, we keep imagining better and better. And so what we have appears worse and worse. And so all the, the progress that we made always starts to make other things feel a little less good because then we keep thinking towards something else. And, it, you know, I think, again, it's not so much that we can solve that paradox or, you know, completely come to terms with it, and, uh, but we can accept it. We can kind of generate some sense of, of feeling okay with the world that does present us these kinds of problems and difficulties. I was listening to an interview not long ago with... Um uh, former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she was talking about what it means to have a good life. And she was talking about, you know, you know, being satisfied with with the work, you know, having meaning in one's life, having good social connections, all the things that research and humans know to be true. And but but she ended her comment with the sort of the moral responsibility to contribute to society and that we can't actually have a complete sense of happiness or meaning without that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And the way I designed this book was kind of these concentric circles. So, you know, I start with, you know, our personal aspirations or ideals, move into how we think about our relationships, and then go into how we think about society and then nature. And they're all meant to be really connected for exactly the, the I think, the, the same impulse behind um, Justice Ginsburg's remark is you really, you know, if, if the way that I live is part of a culture, a society, a moment in time, you know, I, I buy the things that are available to me, I pursue the jobs or opportunities that are available to me, I don't create the world from scratch, uh, I, I'm born into it and I operate within it, then one of the things that I have to do is to make sure that the opportunities it's presenting to me, are, it's also giving to others and the, the kinds of meaning and possibility that it's giving to me, it's also giving to others. And my own life will be enriched because other things will become possible as more people get involved, as more people are part of a thriving, caring society. Um, the, the, the social aspect of it's fundamentally important. And I think, especially when we're talking about something like the good enough life in a society that really excessively rewards both in terms of, uh, prestige and, and material gains, some, some of us, uh, and, and really under pays and, and underappreciates the work and the contributions of others, 
um, it becomes very different, difficult to to think about living a, a just a you know a kind of good enough life. And so, if we we don't think about how do we change the the matrix, how do we change how we understand things, how do we think about happiness differently, right? How do we how do we think about goodness and justice and and uh, what it means to be a citizen differently? If we're not also doing that work, it's going to be increasingly hard for us to pursue our own sense yeah. of, a, of a good enough life. Well, and a solid citizenry, you know, becoming a solid citizen is not something that schools model for kids. I mean, it used to be, you know, civics used to be part of the curriculum in U.S. schools. I'm assuming the same in other parts of the world and, and maybe less so now, but it was taught to us in the way that it was incumbent upon us to become part of the the fiber of society mm. and maybe I'm, this I'm, is missing yeah. a little bit today i think it was missing i'm jealous even as i hear you because i didn't have a i didn't have a civics class um when i you know 20 years ago graduated high school um i also just realized it was 20 years ago which is kind of funny um but no i, I think exactly i i would love to imagine um, an education and that that not only teaches us abstractly right here's what you would do if you were interested in in civics um but also embodies it right you know like you you meet with people you see how this works you, you play it out maybe even you know I, I was a bit of a student radical i always thought the students should have some say in what happens during the school day Right. If we're going to think about this democratically, we should have some say uh, in how these processes occur. We shouldn't imagine that someone out there always has the right answer and it doesn't matter how it affects people. You know, and obviously there are limits. <laughs> right. There's one recess all day. That's another thing. You know, we, we, this needs to be a, a conversation that we really think about. But I do think we should, you know, part of the reason we lose this in schools is because schools are not designed on a democratic model. And the philosopher John Dewey uh, wrote about this very elegantly back in the beginning of the 20th century, really saying if our schools themselves don't embody democracy, just to say they don't embody not an abstraction of knowledge, but the way in which knowledge is created together, then it's going to be very hard for us to make democratic citizens because they're going to grow up with this sense of distance, with the sense that knowledge is something that some people hold and other people don't. Uh, but if we think about the world as one that we make together, we create together, even if obviously, again, institutions can't just have recess all the time, but right, we can cook together to understand chemistry was one of Dewey's main examples. You know, we can we can kind of recreate this knowledge together. Um, so I'm, I'm, yeah, just to sort of say, I think I'm very interested in, in the kind of thing that you're talking about. And again, I think part of that is that appreciation. Democracy is an appreciation of our own imperfection. It's an appreciation of the fact that no one has complete or total or perfect knowledge, and therefore no one can rule over everyone else, right? But we all need to kind of share and participate and, and be part of this. Let's take a pause. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Professor Avi Alpert. We're talking about the good enough life. To learn more, please visit www.avramalpert.com. You can find Avi on Twitter at Avram Alpert. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. We're back, continuing the conversation with Professor Avi Alpert. We're talking about the secrets of good enoughness and the good life. Let's get back to it. Being good enough, Avi, to me also means being willing to surrender the need to control or to be right or have it all go my way. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, we write the books that we need to read and, and I have a very stubborn streak and I can <laughs> totally fail at, at doing exactly the things that you're talking about. I can want control of things that I don't have control over. Um, I can insist on being right about things that I'm clearly wrong about. And, you know, learning that doing, you know, the, the most um, really expressing for myself, hopefully for other people in this book, that this is an impediment not only to your conversation with someone who's getting annoyed by you, right, but to your own um, growth uh, and your own understanding of the world and to really appreciating that there is nothing wrong right, with being imperfect. Uh, there's something wrong with insisting on your imperfection, right? There's something wrong when you're kind of pig-headed about it and, you know, okay, no, but I'm right. But if you really are able to kind of be vulnerable and, and be open and, and be willing to be wrong, you know, it's pretty amazing what starts to happen. One of the places I found this most is in the classroom. And I think there's always, again, to go back to what we were talking about, when I teach classes sometimes, you know, I'd stand there as a professor and try and still, here's the knowledge that I want you guys to have and hope that they would absorb it. And then at some point I started telling stories about myself and often, you know, somewhat self-deprecating ones. And they would open up, right? You know, what I'm really asking my students to do is to assume that where they are now is not the end of their learning and that they need to keep learning. And yet I'm projecting myself as this person who already knows. And the more that I was able to say, look, I don't actually know. I am not sure about this. I have questions here. The more they got involved, right? And the more that they were interested and also able to say of themselves, I'm not sure about this. And that's really what you want to have happen in, in a classroom. And I think also often in a romantic relationship with a friendship, right? It's that kind of openness and, and give and take that really makes something kind of meaningful and connected between people. I love what you've just shared. And I can imagine uh, in the classroom how that works, that the more you lean into not knowing, the more excited the students get about exploring what that means with you. Yeah, it's kind of remarkable. I mean, you know, I had this one class I taught at Rutgers University eight or nine years ago now, and ostensibly the class was about uh, literature and Buddhism. And I, you know, I think it was, I put together this complex syllabus. It was quite interesting. But one day, you know, a character had had um, passed away in in one of the novels, and I started to kind of talk about what losing someone close to me had had meant, and how sad I had felt, and and how much it had kind of brought up these thoughts for me. And the room was kind of quiet for a moment, and then this student, I mean, God. God bless him, just, you know, goes on this long story. His friend of his had just passed, and it had just totally, it gets back to what we were talking about earlier with, you know, skinning your knee almost, but it, was, it had stopped him in his tracks. And he'd realized he'd been living one life, and it was no longer the life he wanted to live, and he pivoted on it, and he started to try to live differently. And that was really the kind of point I was trying to get across in the lecture, but it never would have come across, right, except that I sort of started to say, look, I've, I've grappled with this a little bit. I'm still not sure about how I feel about it. Do any of you have experiences that were meaningful for you, right? And then they kind of open up. And, and that class from that day really kind of gelled and became a community of learners uh, and me among them. And that's where a uh, shift can happen, right? Like if we, if we approach our communication in this way, you know, you, you've, talk, you've spoken about sort of being more vulnerable in, in how you communicate. It invites others to meet us at that point and there we find the connection. There we find sort of the soul of humanity and the good enough work can take place, right? Because you're, you're all working at the same level, not from superiority, you know? Yeah, no, and, and it can be very hard, you know. Um, I'm not great with this with politics. Like, I'm, it's really something I'm struggling with because I have, I have very strong opinions about things. And I kind of, I like to argue. <laughs> I kind of grew up in a culture of argument. My parents are rabbis. You know, there's a lot of kind of contention. Argue and argue. Two Jews, three opinions, right? So it's just kind of constantly thinking about things and dissecting them. But it's not helpful when you actually want someone to take you seriously and listen to your, you know, when you really disagree with someone politically, uh, you're on the opposite sides of an issue. We can, and I've done this plenty of times. You can, here's what I think, here's what I think. Okay, that's the end of the conversation. As I'm trying to get better at this, it's very hard, but really just, okay, look, I disagree strongly with you, but tell me what you think. Like, I, I actually generally want to know where you're coming from. Um, and I, I wouldn't say I've thereby converted anybody or been converted myself, but there's a kind of possibility that emerges into the air uh, when we kind of admit, okay, look, you know, I'm not saying I'm wrong about this, but I, I, I'm willing to say I'm unsure and I'm willing to hear you out. Uh, it can open other things. And it's hard, you know, because 
it's easy, I think sometimes easier for me to say that than someone who feels really endangered or um, oppressed or, or very uh, marginalized in, in a particular moment. Um, it's much harder for that person to listen. I'm often talking about somewhat abstract uh, political issues. Yes. Uh, but again, you know, as much as we can, much as we can do this, I do think it can can help where where it's possible. Which you know leads to the whole other subject matter, two different subject matters of sort of generosity of heart. You know, how can we be generous with others? You know, with our time, with our energy, with our focus, attention, and also. The curiosity of wanting, like, tell me more. I'm in a very similar position as you in that I have very strong opinions about politics. And I try to, it's not that I try to keep them to myself, but I am try to be curious about the other. Like, tell me why you don't believe or tell me why this doesn't work for you. Tell me where you feel there is failure. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And and sometimes you learn. I mean, sometimes, again, it, it may just strengthen your own argument because you start to understand, you know, where, where other people um, are coming from. Sometimes you can learn to express yourself better. Um, but I think, you know, it also just, it the studies suggest, you know, and, and uh, I'm trying to start to implement this in my life, that if you go into a community, right, that is, say, vaccine hesitant, and you just say, take the vaccine, no one's going to listen to you. They're vaccine hesitant. This information is going nowhere. When, however, you go in and you say, tell me why you're not interested. I want to learn from you. I'm not here to tell you what to do. Um, tell me, you know, why you don't want to do it. Okay. You know, you really hear someone out. You listen, you ask questions. And then you say, look, are you willing to hear my opinion? And one of the things that the study show is as soon as someone says yes to that question, are you willing to hear my opinion on the matter? That opens us up. So even just, you know, starting there. Okay. Yes, I'm willing to hear. And, and then, then, you know, you've shown that you care and you take them seriously and then you can respond. And again, to relate this to, to the kind of, again, the, the good enough model, I think one of the points here is that we all share some real values, right? We all want to be cared for. We all want to be taken seriously. We all want a kind of decent life. We all want to have our, our needs, our needs met. And none of us has the perfect solution for how to do that. And so trying to kind of work that through and, and come to that in some collective way, I think, you know, meets that that goal of of connecting our personal aspirations, our social aspirations. And it's difficult work. And and I'm also, again, I'm perfectly willing to admit I'm not always good at it and I do have strong opinions. But the more that I can, I think the more I'm able to to connect with people um, and at least start to see where they're coming from and, and what we do share. I think that the practice of the good enough life is just that. It's a practice, right? Some days we're going to be better at it than others. But from what you share, I glean that the practice of the good enough life is what leads to life for the greater good. For me, uh, you know, absolutely. It's it's not simply a matter of, you know, look, part of it is, of course, accepting our own limitations, our own failures, you know, the, and, and understanding kind of what it is that we really want to do, what we find good and meaningful for us. Uh, but again, to really accomplish that is is very difficult in a world that tells us all the time to be great, to be the best, to be perfect. And so the much as we can kind of make a world, make a society where appreciating everyone's decency, everyone's capacity for care and for, for love and, and for being part of a community together. Um, and we can start to sort of see through some of those uh, things that that keep us apart in that process through understanding not our shared glory right but our shared imperfections uh, then we can kind of start to develop something where it really is it's good and it's enough you know it's it's decent and it's sufficient for everyone there is a word in hebrew and i don't speak hebrew i just know a few words dayenu mm-hmm. right yes and the translation is enough right that's my again. I'm I'm um, you know I'm a bit of a, a lost. Uh, uh, I've wandered from the path, but yes, my it's it's you know it would have been enough, right? If if God had done this, it would have been sufficient for. And yet there was more in a sense. And that, we could have a whole other show on on on, on lost on the path or or <laughs> lapsed Judaism or lapsed religion, but we're not doing that today. But the <laughs> word is is a kind of a, and maybe it's in some reptilian part of my brain a meaningful word in that it connotes for me, like what enoughness is leave out the God component, you know? Yeah. And I, I've been, I mean, I have, um, 
I've been reading the Hebrew scriptures kind of cover to cover, which I've, I've never done in, in my life for, for the, the next book I'm writing, which is about wisdom. And one of the things, you know, that's that's opened up the book for me is is to sort of read it, not without God, but to think about God as a force in the world that sometimes is really benevolent and sometimes is really bad <laughs> and does all these complicated things. And, you know, how do you deal with the, that force that you can't explain? And I think when you when you start to wed together some of the the parts of the scriptures, you get the, you know, what you get in someone like Ecclesiastes, you get this kind of sense of vanity, you get the sense that, you know, what we do is is a bit pointless, yet we kind of keep going. Um, but you also get the the idea of a of a covenant, of a law that kind of binds us all together. And I think that that makes some sense uh, to me that in a world in which um, everything is a bit manic and hard to explain and we can't grasp it and, and we can call that God or we can call that nature or we can call it any other uh, gods or what have you. We have to appreciate that fact. We have to appreciate some of that difficulty. And then we have to find ways of working together to deal with that um, and to make sure there is, as it were, enough, right? That, that this is part of what it means to have a covenant is, is that we are ensuring the well-being uh, of all among us. Professor Avram Alpert, thanks for being with me today and sharing the Good Enough Life with our audience. Please come back and, and talk more about your next book. I'm, I'm already extending the invitation. We need to talk about wisdom. To learn more, please visit AvramAlpert.com. On Twitter, you can find Avi at Avram Alpert. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Professor Andreas Elpidoro and Professor Avi Alpert, wishing you kind words, kinder thoughts, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUURadioMalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.